welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, here with audience fave, Kale Brooks. Kale, what's new? Uh, not much. Happy to be here. Happy to be filling in for Ariella. Uh, and yeah, very sorry happy if you saw. Be- sorry if you saw Ariella's graphic on the like intro graphic. Uh, surprise! It's actually Kale. Uh, Ariella it- will be back at some point. I promise. Um, but I'm really it- happy to have you, Kale. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit of a bait and switch because it's clearly a better graphic. So. Uh- <laughs> No, happy to be here. This is, I think, a really good episode. It's, uh, I think, hopefully it'll be an important episode. At least the interview will be. Um, I think our segments will be too, but you can judge that. Uh, undoubtedly, the interview will be important. Uh, and because uh, we're talking about, I think, probably the most important thing for the left to figure out right now, right? Which is basically like, who are the working class in America? And can the left win them over? Can we, can the left, can a left political project form some kind of alliance with working class people? Uh, Because historically, the only way any left political agenda has ever been realized has been through working class support. So it's kind of, it's kind of the biggest question. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, but this is important because uh, our guest actually has done along with a number of other people, some pretty important research on this. Like we actually have, we're not just speculating anymore. We actually have data. So we actually, we actually have hard data. Um, I'm, I'm obviously really excited. Our guest is Jared Abbott. He is a researcher at the newly formed think tank center for working class politics. And um, I'm, I'm super excited to have him on basically Jacobin in collaboration with the polling firm YouGov. And then of course uh, the center for working class politics has uh, basically uh, conducted a, a sort of one of its one or first of its kind poll on uh, some of the issues that uh, working class voters prioritize. Um, I don't think, you know, pollsters generally tend to overlook people without college degrees or they tend to be underrepresented in the polls. Uh, This is a survey that focuses pretty much exclusively on that group of people um, and I think paints a really robust picture of what their political preferences are and how Democrats and progressives can um, message our policies and politics to this group. Yeah. And if you're thinking to yourself like, wow, that sounds great. I can't wait to read that. Well, this is actually a sneak preview because the actual survey will be dropping in a week. So you're getting some, you know, this is this is the first look at at data. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think that I think the actual like study itself will be published on Jacobin's site uh, on November 9th, which, as Kale said, is next week. So definitely, you know, watch out for it. It's 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 really interesting. Um, and when it is published, we will put a link uh, in the description box here and on any future videos where we talk about the survey. Yeah. Data is rarely this good. You're going to want to read this data. Indeed. (laughs) Um, I mean, I mean, obviously we're also super excited for the study because this is a theme that comes up on our show time and time again, right? Like we, Mm -hmm. you know, especially you and I, I think Kale, we talk a lot on the show about how Democrats and the left have been bleeding working class support, uh, both in the U S and in Europe, basically for the last 40 years. And, uh, as you said before, it's really crucial that we reverse this tide. Uh, if, you know, in the U S we want to hang on to the Senate, uh, if we want to make any kind of progress whatsoever, if we ever want Medicare for all, uh, or any of these sort of bold progressive changes, uh, we definitely need a working class constituency. Yeah. And I mean, we've covered this before. There was a recent episode we did with Paul Heidemann, which part of that addresses the question of, you know, 
are all of the working class people turning to the Republicans? And that's clearly not being borne out. But uh, there is some interesting stuff going on with working class political interests, um, working class ideology, of course, as well. Uh, and so I think the the data actually, again, we'll get to this when we get to this, but um, it's in some ways, I think it's, it, it, for me, at least it was confirmational of some understanding of who I think working class people are. And of course, I have to have some understanding because there's hundreds of millions of people in this country and, uh, you know, I can't get to know all of them. I'm, you know, I live in New York and, uh, you know, I canvassed for Bernie in Iowa, but I don't, that was a very small survey of like that part of the, the country. And so um, I think it's, this is really useful to, to like, instead of, again, just kind of pontificating about like, what do working class people want and think? Right. Um, some of it, again, feels confirmational and then some of it's surprising. And so, yeah. uh, and it actually, I think, helps by understanding who working class people are and what their interests are uh, and then what their particular specific political preferences are today, um, absent kind of some kind of structural explanation or something. Uh, it, it ultimately helps us then figure out political strategy. But the, the reason why you figure this out is so that you actually can like do better politics win. in the world. Yeah, yeah. you can. So you right. win. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, so, well, on that on that note, uh, I think we both have segments that relate to this question of how to win, how to do politics. Um, I just want to say as a disclaimer for mine, uh, if you are a longtime Jacobin Show watcher and you saw our second episode, what I'm going to present today actually draws a lot from that. So you you will have heard a lot of this before. But again, that was a year ago. Um, there's some new stuff. I feel like what I'm going to talk about is super important and relevant to the topic today. Um, She's really downplaying it. It's important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I feel like this issue comes up time and time again. Um, Kale, you know, you and I can talk more about that in the dis- in the discussion bit. Uh, but mm-hmm. should should we hop to it? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. So what I want to talk about today is the concept of who is economically left but culturally moderate. So what does it even mean to be economically left, but culturally moderate, or even culturally conservative? For some progressives, this particular political orientation, of course, raises alarm bells and conjures an image of a blue-collar white guy who has regressive views on race and gender, or even worse, an image of blood and soil fascism. But the truth is that economically left and culturally moderate describes a significant number of Americans, and it's not necessarily the people that progressives automatically suspect. According to the political scientists Peter Hall and Georgina Evans, up to 20% of the U.S. population today fits the description of economically left but culturally moderate. In their research, Hall and Evans found that a lot of these economically left but culturally moderate people happen to be manual workers, and low-wage service workers. We also know from previous polling that plenty of Black voters and immigrant voters fit this this description as well. So for instance, polling shows that Black voters tend to express lower levels of support for same-sex marriage than other groups. Similarly, many Latino and Asian immigrants who identify as Catholic oppose abortion. According to a recent Pew Research survey, a majority of Asian voters today say they do not support legalizing marijuana for recreational use. So these are pretty clearly moderate or even conservative cultural views that, in isolation, probably align better with Republicans than with Democrats. 
So why don't we see the 49% of Black voters who say they oppose same-sex marriage casting ballots for anti-gay politicians? Why aren't significant numbers of Latinos and Asians mobilizing around the evils of abortion or weed? The key here is this. On the whole, none of these groups prioritize these cultural issues. Majorities of Black, Latino, and Asian voters consistently say in polls that their top issues are things like healthcare, jobs, the economy, and programs like Social Security and Medicare. So given that Republicans constantly work overtime to privatize and or destroy pretty much all of the above, shouldn't Democrats have every single economically left bread and butter issues voter on lock? Here's the problem. Over the last 40 years, the Democrats have moved to the right on economics. Think about Bill Clinton deregulating the financial sector and dismantling welfare in the 90s. Or think about Obama bailing out the banks after the financial crash, Hillary Clinton giving speeches at Goldman Sachs, and Joe Biden telling Wall Street executives on the campaign trail that nothing would fundamentally change if he became president. Meanwhile, over the same period that Democrats have started to look more like Republicans on economics, the two parties have been growing more polarized on cultural issues such as immigration, abortion, race relations, and gay marriage. Today, the major differences between the Democrats and the Republicans lie mostly in this cultural realm. So what this means is you now have a block of the electorate that's actually to the left of most mainstream Democrats on economics, but more moderate, or at least more ambivalent, on the cultural issues. In other words, in the U.S., there really is no major political party today that represents people who are economically left, but culturally moderate. Now, we know that plenty of people who identify this way end up, for voting, end up voting for Democrats anyway, particularly in the case of the Black, Latino, and Asian voter, voters I mentioned earlier. But we also know that on the whole, Democrats have been bleeding working-class support for decades. If people who are economically left but culturally moderate do actually make up a fifth of the electorate, what this suggests to me is that there's really an opportunity here, not just for the Democrats, but also for progressives and the left, to appeal to this overlooked part of the electorate by foregrounding bread and butter economic issues and leaving the culture wars behind. Now, of course, that does not mean sacrificing or watering down our positions on abortion, immigration, or gay rights. It simply means leading with our economic platform and foregrounding issues like jobs, healthcare, and public services, because we know that many of the voters who are economically left but culturally moderate are going to respond to a strong economic agenda and be more movable on the cultural issues. I want to now take a look at some results from a poll last year of low-wage workers. The progressive polling firm Lake Research surveyed around 1,200 low-wage workers right before the 2020 election, and they found that significant majorities of the workers were economically progressive. Respondents overwhelmingly said they favored stronger workers' rights, a $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all, and so forth. Now, at the same time, when it came to specific candidates, these same workers were actually pretty evenly divided between Biden and Trump and pretty evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans in congressional races. So even if Democrats are still marginally better than Republicans on most economic issues, and even if they frequently say they're the party that's looking out for workers, they clearly haven't been doing a great job of convincing people. We famously saw this play out in the state of Florida in the 2020 election when a supermajority of voters in the state passed a $15 minimum wage ballot measure but at the same time, the state overall broke for Trump. So where does this leave us? 
I want to look at one more piece of this survey that I think illustrates the dangers of dismissing or writing off voters who are economically left but culturally moderate. At the end of this particular survey, respondents were asked to listen to a series of statements and say which ones they found convincing. The first statement they were given was a kind of Bernie-style left populist message that read, America has a choice this year between two paths. One path keeps us going in the current direction. The top 1% of wage earners, the wealthiest, keep pulling ahead. Wall Street and corporate CEOs keep rigging the rules and the wage gap keeps growing. The other path is toward working people coming together and forcing politicians, CEOs, and Wall Street to listen to us. 67% of respondents said they found this Bernie-style statement convincing. Great news, right? Well, as it turns out, almost as many respondents reacted favorably to a different kind of populist message. 61% of respondents said they found the following Trump-style statement convincing. It reads, Our leaders must prioritize keeping us safe and ensuring that hardworking Americans have the freedom to prosper. Leaders who built a strong economy once can do it again after COVID-19. Taking a second look at China or illegal immigration from places overrun with drugs and criminal gangs is just common sense. And so is fully funding the police so our communities are not threatened by people who refuse to follow our laws. We need to make sure we take care of our own people first, especially the people who politicians have cast aside for too long to cater to whatever special interest groups yell the loudest or riot in the street. So the point here is not that the working class harbors rigid conservative sentiments or is uniquely susceptible to dog whistles. The point is that both left and right populism can flourish when there's a segment of the electorate that almost no political party bothers to campaign to. If Democrats and progressives don't seriously look at this part of the population, we run the danger of again creating a vacuum for someone like Trump or another, worse, right-wing populist to appeal to this group. As the saying goes, if we don't talk to them, they will. Yeah, it's. I think it's, it's in some ways, like there's an obvious difficult dilemma here of the your actual principles, your political worldview and your outlook and what you believe is uh, a good, you know, a good society, what, how you want to transform society for the better. And then there's, you know, reality itself. And you look out and you say, okay, where are people actually? And I think for a lot of people on the left, some of, some of this has been difficult because, I mean, part of it's just the fact that a lot of the left uh, are not working class people themselves. It's mostly people coming from middle class or, or downwardly mobile middle class, uh, families and neighborhoods. Uh, and so is an aspect, there's an aspect of this that's just kind of, you know, it's moral politics when they look at, when they, when they approach their principles, not bread and butter, you know, like I need these, these politics to be enacted in order for me to get by, you know, not just like, you know, maybe not even like the next year or the next month or something. Uh, and so what's important is like, and what you're highlighting, what's like so present for like the left to figure out is, um, and this is what you know we're trying to figure out with Jared a little bit later is uh, you know how do you meld your principles with a political project, a campaign that like actually reaches out to these people because what all the research seems to show is that these people are winnable on economic issues. And so the fact that you foreground the economic issues and you downplay or push you know don't center the issues that, um, end up are more hurting the coalition. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That like splinters people off where you don't need to splinter them off. In fact, obviously in a democracy, you want as many people in the coalition as possible. Um, but you also want it to be, you know, for a left political project to be successful, you want it to be as working class as possible. And so you prioritize, you know, how do we make this basically populist, but also progressive and working mm-hmm. class and uh it's we have to we have to pull these people in we have to talk to these people and any good organizer already knows this it's it's a matter of kind of getting the left reacquainted with kind of like traditional style organizing where you actually like you don't go around and scold people you actually convince them and you like end up having similar politics by the end of your organizing uh because you've built uh, a relationship out of trust and solidarity so I also think that there, uh, you know, there's obviously a difference between messaging and the actual platform. And uh, like, I think Trump may be better than anybody understood this uh, on the tr- on the campaign trail. You know, he was like, I'm not going to touch Social Security. I'm not going to touch uh, Medicare. Uh, but right. in office, he was just a standard Republican who slashed taxes, who did nothing to bring troops back. You know, he 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 basically understood that there is a way to have a message uh, that appeals to a broader segment of the electorate than what you're actually going to do, right? And I'm not saying that, you know, the left has to be or is anything like Trump. But what I'm saying is that saying that we're going to center bread and butter issues absolutely does not mean that we're going to say drop abortion rights from our platform or we're going to like suddenly become build the wall type people. Like, I don't think that, I think that there's a way, again, to focus on the economic issues, social security, Medicare, uh, jobs, healthcare, medic, you know, Medicare for all, in fact, yeah. without actually compromising on these other issues. Yeah. And actually there's something you said, uh, in a segment uh, a few months ago, I think it was the Bernie de-radicalize me, uh, clip where like the, what's like so important like, yes, we're saying foreground economic issues, but maybe even more, um, I don't know, accurately we're saying, foreground working class politics right. now like our the our political project is aimed at uh working class people and their needs and so do working class people need abortion yeah of course right i mean they in fact they need it way more than middle class and elites right now because those are the people who actually do have access to that right. whereas work, working class people don't because they don't have the resources uh so i think that's i think where- in a few segments actually i've brought this up before that like the top issues for working class people regardless of you know race or gender or like i don't know well for working class democratic leading voters is always jobs healthcare the economy uh social security you know like these are things that come up time and time again so mm-hmm. to me it just seems again really strategic to focus on those things Uh, You know, I think that the same sort of surveys that show that working class people prioritize these issues actually show that middle class people have a different set of priorities. Like that tends to be more things like climate change and like racial justice and immigration. And it's not that again, it's not that those things aren't important or that we have to throw in the towel on them or not make them part of our platform. Um, But again, what do you want to lead with? And like, who are you making part of your coalition and who are you campaigning to? Exactly. Yeah. You gotta, you're thinking, you have to think about winning. (laughs) Like it's, it's not about being right. It's about winning. And so, and like that same data that you're pulling from middle-class people want healthcare. They want like some of them want Medicare for all. Some of them want 
some other, they want some other kind of healthcare system, but it's organizers, it's up to organizers to actually make the case for Medicare for all. And like a lot of those people are winnable on that mm -hmm. issue. So that's the issue that you, you know, you center in order to build out the biggest, broadest coalition that still conforms with your principles. So I, I just want to, before, before I let you do your segment, Kale, I just want to make one last point about uh, this idea of the economically left, but culturally moderate voter. Um, mm -hmm. I think that something that, you know, you understand if you spend a lot of time organizing or, you know, going door to door uh, or canvassing is that people's politics are usually pretty ideologically inconsistent, to be honest. People are really, really idiosyncratic and they have beliefs that kind of span the political spectrum. I think that people who are ideologically consistent, like perhaps I think maybe you and I are like actually not the norm. Um, right. I mean, even if you just think about members of your family who aren't like don't have their brains destroyed by politics. Like they're probably, they probably are a grab bag, right. Of like yeah. different beliefs and ideologies. Um, so when I say that there is a segment of the electorate that is economically left and culturally moderate or even culturally conservative, like I hope, or what I wanted to get across is I don't think that this segment of the electorate is like completely welded to these moderate or conservative cultural ideas. Right. I think that's just how it shakes out in the polling. But again, the thing that I really wanted to drive home is that none of these voters prioritize these cultural issues. Or I mean, you know, probably some of them do. But on the whole, majorities of these voters do not prioritize these cultural issues. And I brought this up in a different segment when I looked at some recent polling on Latino voters. Latino voters overwhelmingly, and especially last year, have said that their top priorities are jobs, healthcare, mm -hmm. the economy. Again, like, I'm sorry, I keep repeating this. I sound like a broken record, but I just think it's really important. Yeah, well, that's why you should keep repeating it. Right. Sorry, so we're just going to have to keep repeating it until you guys get it. But, but <laughs> you I guys think, get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the last bit, I think that it's just like, to say, like, I think you're totally right that uh, voters are idiosyncratic. People are idiosyncratic. Um, and part of that is just the fact that people are so uh, depoliticized in this country that they are not yeah. like politically active. They don't have like regular uh, aspects of their lives that uh, are asking concrete political questions about how do we in fact change society and the circumstances around us? How do we allocate resources to fund this or that? Uh, and so like every single person has material interests. And like, that's pretty objective, just like you either, if you're a working class person, you don't own the stuff. And so therefore, you know, uh, you are subjected to the the vagaries of, of uh, the market. And so therefore, you would have an interest in, you know, taking stuff out of the market and having it as a social right, that it's, you know, healthcare is not tied to a job, that right. you are guaranteed healthcare, that's your material interest. But Medicare for all is a specific policy that you have to like convince people is actually going to meet their material interest. And so we can, there's like, we can say, yes, of course, Medicare for all is going to meet that interest. Uh, we, we believe it, but like tons of people are rightfully skeptical of like any kind of social change because most change in their lifetime has been to their detriment. So we have to make the case that actually there can be good progressive change that can be to your benefit and to your interests. Uh, and the fact that someone doesn't agree with you on a policy doesn't mean that like they don't know what their own interest is or something. That's right. insane. Well, uh, speaking of uh, messaging and uh, talking talking to the people, um, Kale, what what is your segment about? 
my segment is literally just based on the fact that I was looking at YouTube this weekend. So <laughs> I hope, hope people can relate to that. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I don't know if you guys saw this, uh, but uh, John Stewart's back. Welcome back, John Stewart. If you didn't see, comedian and, pol- and political commentator John Stewart, who formerly hosted Comedy Central's The Daily Show, returned last month with a new show titled The Problem with John Stewart. What? More! Hitler! Do you, by the way, do you think that's how Hitler started? <laughs> ah, they, they really like chanting the name Hitler. All right, here's how. Shit's getting dark fast, isn't it? So now, based on comments, the comment sections on these clips online, it's clear that there's a segment of people who are overjoyed at his return. But not just because it's a friendly face we haven't seen in a while, but because it's a sign of political hope. One comment reads, I love that Jon Stewart is back. I hate that there was a need for him to come back. But what that need, or what is that need that Stewart's return is satisfying? Obviously, American politics have only gotten more tumultuous in the past six years, and there's no shortage of charlatans and grifters offering us unequivocally wrong and misleading information. But what can John offer us to deal with that? Or maybe more importantly, what can he offer to deal with systemic inequality? Well, let me first say that I grew up watching The Daily Show. Rather than coming out of some far left group or something, I was politicized before Bernie by following John's takedowns of media figures and politicians. I found his program useful, as I'm sure others did as well, because it helped me develop a critical perspective on politics. And the point was to see through the partisanship and the media spin and find the aspects of politics that actually affected people's lives. Or in Stewart's words, I learned to spot the bullshit. Uh, I think that was useful, but I also think it was fatally flawed. And the diagnosis of what's wrong with society would typically redound to something like there are partisan red versus blue divides that are really not worth getting heated over. This was epitomized in uh, 2010's Rally to Restore Sanity and or Fear, which included such horribly dispiriting signs as this, uh, which it reads, what do we want? Moderation. When do we want it? In In a reasonable time frame. Or this. Uh, Protest signs are, wait, hold on, let let me get this right. Protest signs are an ineffectual means of communicating my nuanced views on a variety of issues that cannot be reduced to a simple pithy slogan. And then there's this. I disagree with you, but I'm pretty sure you're not Hitler. Uh, So uh, John was recently reminded of the rally on his new show, and he seemed to offer some reflections. Uh, In Venezuela, we were at our best when we had millions of people mobilized on the streets demanding their rights. And I think the biggest challenge is to sustain that. You, you, John, you've had experiences with different causes. I remember your march. I think it was against insanity or something along those lines. Yeah, we won. (laughs) Well, (laughs) for me, that's... Everything's worked out pretty good. It's it's a great example. You know, in that single moment, you mobilize, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people. Right. But at the end of the day... Yeah, to get high in a field. Well, I mean... Yeah, but exactly. So how do you sustain that so people understand that that being present makes a difference? It actually creates an impact when... The other thing it's energy at the local level. That, that's what I learned in the 9-11 yes. fight. It's energy at, at, at the local level. So I'm happy to hear him say that politics needs energy on the ground. It's really just something that's pretty elementary to doing any kind of progressive mass action. But the classic John Stewart way of doing politics isn't mobilizing people. It's raising awareness. 
And through a clever use of jokes, and I will say a much better sense of humor than literally anyone else doing this today, the point of every episode of The Daily Show was to highlight the hypocrisy of some bad actor to show that he or she really doesn't have your best interests at heart. For if we know truly what motivates these people, then, the argument goes, then we can expose and undermine their appeal. This argument didn't end when John left TV. Perhaps his greatest prodigy, the one who picked up the media project The Daily Show started and pushed it to a whole new level, is John Oliver. Aurora Borealis in Damage Magazine writes, Each week, Oliver performs an in-depth examination of a particular joke, or excuse me, a particular topic of national or global concern, peppering his presentation with throwaway jokes, but mostly staying quiet, quite focused on laying out very precisely the true insanity of the modern world. The most questionable assumption of last week tonight is that adequately delimiting the problem is a way of solving it. If only we really knew the thought goes, we would go about changing it. The political documentary industry is built on this basic assumption. Now, the underlying assumption here is that knowledge by itself really is power. And uh, I hate to break, it, uh, break the bad news, but uh, that's not true. Uh, and I think most of you probably know that that's not true at this point, because most Americans have polled favorably to Medicare for all and overwhelmingly believe that politics is rigged in favor of the rich. But the fact that most people know this doesn't actually impose any costs on politicians or corporations to change their practices. Aurora Borealis continues, writing, every doctor or mechanic knows that you have to treat causes, not symptoms. Sure, consciousness is debased, but that debasement is merely a symptom of underlying structural causes and cannot be argued away in itself. The desire to do so is, in fact, typically bourgeois, evidencing a need for clarity in thought that does not endanger existing conditions. Society has put working people's human needs over the narrow interests of bosses to make a profit when, and truly only when, working people have been organized. This is because the fundamental fact of capitalism is that power is based on the material ownership of resources. And unless workers can stop the flow of profits within the workplaces, they are completely at the whim of their employers. So now to return to Jon Stewart. He ended his show in the summer of 2015, right as the Bernie Sanders campaign was gaining momentum for the first time. And many wondered what the show would have looked like during some of the major battles within the Democratic Party. Well, now he's returned and... I must say, it seems like the Bernie campaign has rubbed off on him. See, it turns out that hardworking Americans aren't doing that great. Anybody know what might help them? Single payer health care, government paid child care. Free college, government healthy food, early education, child education, universal child care. Guaranteed job for everyone with a family sustaining wage, adequate family and medical leave, paid vacations and retirement security. You guys are dead on. Man, that is totally unexpected. But you all are dead on right. That is exactly what we need to do in this country. But I, I sense the tone in your voice. Why? Why aren't we doing those things? If that's not socialism, I'm not sure what is. Every socialist wish list item. Socialist and globalist wish list. Socialist fantasy. Paradise for all. Right. <laughs> So there it is. We cannot give our hardworking, leather-behanded heroes their basic needs because that's socialism. So it looks like John heard the good news about democratic socialism. He's now probably a Bernie bro. Uh, 
so the problem isn't his morals. They seem fine. Uh, the problem isn't his policy goals. Seems like he agrees with Bernie. The real problem with John Stewart is his diagnosis of the root cause of inequality. So socialism is bad because it's the government picking the winners and losers. And there's nothing worse than that. Not spiders with wings, not grandma titty punching. There's nothing worse. (laughs) Basically saying, if you're a loser, it's your fault. And government stepping in is socialism. There's only one problem with this. And that is government picks winners and losers all the time. The White House gives an early Christmas present to Detroit's automakers, a $17 billion loan. The airline industry has gotten a $50 billion lifeline. $23 million incentive package for Amazon. All right, so that segment goes on just a little further, but it basically ends before John offers any real strategy to combat the government's bias towards capitalists. But identifying bias alone is sorely insufficient. That's basically what he's doing in this segment. Why is it biased? Is it just some bad politicians who take some shady donations? Of course, that happens, but that's not really the problem. The problem are the rules of the game of capitalism. As long as all the shit in society is unilaterally owned and controlled by a small handful of individuals who are single-mindedly focused on maximizing profit above and beyond all of their considerations, we're going to keep running into these same problems. And unfortunately, trying to demystify a system rather than an egregious person doesn't really have the same punchlines. It's just playing an outrageous clip and then waiting for the laughter. John Stewart, fair to Republicans. <laughs> Book page. last time, Aurora Borealis critiques this by writing, he should have found the prejudgment of his clips by his audience to be disconcerting. But there's an element of truth here. The offensiveness and absurdity of daily life in contemporary capitalist society does not really need elaborate or detailed explication. An extensive cataloging of the horrors, in fact, serves to detract from the clear thinking work of felling the structures that generate these horrors. So let's hope that John has learned the limitations of the old approach, but actually more importantly, let's not place any hope in John at all. Our prospects for a world that better meets working people's needs will not depend on a better media ecosystem. Rather, it'll rely on working people organizing themselves into democratic organizations that multiply their collective power. It will only be through institutions like unions, parties, and independent membership-based political orgs that workers will see a significant shift in their life and the power of capital really challenged. So, uh, Jen, I want to pull you back in now. Uh, there you are. <laughs> uh, it's, I'm, you know, obviously, this is really just the fact that I watched a bunch of John Stewart clips this weekend. <laughs> and there's a little bit of nostalgia, obviously, but um, it's interesting to me both that his politics seem to have shifted somewhat, uh, and then not maybe not surprising at all that he hasn't shifted quite as much as maybe uh, 
you know, one would hope, given uh, Bernie and, and maybe some of the lessons the left has learned since Bernie. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I should confess that uh, Kale sent me some of the clips that he had been going through. In addition to all of the good ones that he pulled for this segment, uh, there, there were also some, I think, pretty, uh, I don't know, tooth gritting, uh, cringe-worthy, uh, ultra-woke clips as well, which I guess is also going to be part of this new show. I haven't seen any of it other than the clips that you sent me. Um, so I think that, honestly, I mean, there's two things. One is what you said that obviously, you know, any amount of kind of pro-Bernie drum beating from the media is, of course, welcome, but at the same time, insufficient. Um, and then the other thing is, because it is the mainstream media, there is always going to be this other element that I think kind of tempers the pro-Bernie sentiment, which is the, you know, more annoying clips that uh, you had sent me, which we don't we don't have any to show for you today, but they're there. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's, and we're, we're about to get into this with Jared in a moment. Uh, I mean, he, uh, John, un, you know, unfortunately, it seems like the the kind of configuration that he's ended up in, um, like after Bernie, basically, is uh, kind of woke progressivism. This like, mm-hmm. let's like, let's do the the Bernie economic platform, but then let's like either you know, like wrap it around with like kind of more woke, more kind of academic language or still like there's, I mean, again, there's some clips on there that are just really upsetting because it's basically, it's these short things where it's like, we're going to talk about what it's like to be oppressed. And it's someone like yelling at the audience, like, uh, don't you know know the black people? Yeah. Black people have been oppressed for 400 years. Like quit your complaining. And it's like, okay, obviously like, the history of American racism and of slavery of Jim Crow, these things are horrible and terrible. And like, and sure, we obviously should be talking about them more and we should be studying them more. Um, But like, if you are actively thinking politically, again, in the way that we were just talking about with your segment, uh, you don't win people over by saying like, you know, you're not feeling all right. Like you feel like, you know, society's rigged against you. Screw you. You don't know anything. Uh, You know, someone else has it way worse than you. Why would you, why do you, what do you have? Like, what do you need in society? Why do you, why are you complaining? It's, it's just, it's not, this is just not politics. It's, right. it's just fundamentally not doing politics. And so it's like when you couple the Bernie program with that, which again is not politics. And it's really just like, I mean, insofar as it actually is politics, it's like, basically it's like a politics of the elite. It's like punching mm-hmm. down at working people and saying, you know, uh, you're having a hard time. Screw you. You know, that kind of thing is so antithetical to the first half. And yet this is just like, this is just how a good chunk of progressives talk about these things. Right. Well, on that note, um, though I would love to continue talking about Jon Stewart, I think our guest, Jared Abbott, has been waiting patiently. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Uh, Jared Abbott is a contributor to Jacobin and Catalyst, and he is also a researcher at the newly formed Center for Working Class Politics. Jared, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, guys. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Perfect. Good to see you, Jared. Great to be here. Good to see you. 
All right. So we had sort of previewed uh, the study that we're going to be talking about at the beginning of the show. But just again, Jacobin uh, and the polling firm YouGov, of course, in collaboration with the Center for Working Class Politics, uh, basically conducted a first of its kind study uh, titled Common Sense Solidarity, How a Working Class Coalition Can Be Built and Maintained. In this study, you guys offer some new and I think very interesting perspectives on working class people's political preferences. So again, uh, just for anybody who's watching, this study will be out in full on Jacobin's site next week, I I believe on November 9th. Um, But of course, in honor of Election Day, which is tomorrow, we wanted to have you on, Jared, to kind of give a preview of some of your findings. Um, Now, before we dive into the findings proper, um, I I just want to ask to kind of set the scene. Uh, why did you and your colleagues decide to form this research group and undertake this study? Uh, what kinds of questions were you looking to answer? And then following from that, how does this study differ from more conventional polls that have come out before? Yeah, no, those are great questions. I mean, the first thing to say uh, is that this is a group of folks that were feeling a little bit, you know, uh, disillusioned, obviously, after the uh, the Bernie uh, the end of the Bernie campaign last year, and we started talking last spring or summer about the need for folks, you know, on our side to think a little bit more carefully and more systematically about the ways in which we might be able to build on some of the lessons learned from the Bernie campaign and from you know the various other you know, progressive insurgent campaigns that have sprung up over the last few years. Um, And we thought that we weren't seeing a lot of really serious analysis, at least in terms of like polling and and surveys uh, that was looking closely into some of the hard choices that progressive campaigns have to make when thinking about their strategy. And so basically what we want to do at the center among other things, is try to understand in as granular a way as we can and in as many different contexts as we can, rural, urban, uh, you know, in terms of like blue states, purple states, in places with different demographic backgrounds. We want to understand how the working class in all of its varieties reacts to different sorts of candidates, especially progressive candidates, so that we can better understand how it is that progressives might be able to sort of get past the, I think, ceiling of, you know, picking off vulnerable Democrats in heavily blue places that I don't think they're at yet, but I think that they're going to get to in the not too distant future. So we want to understand how can progressives expand their coalition into places where progressives traditionally don't do very well. That is to say, in red and purple states, in districts that are pretty competitive. Progressives hardly ever compete in competitive places, especially for Congress, where there were just a few uh, examples of that in 2020 um, of any progressives competing in a competitive area. So we want to know how can progressives do better? And we also want to know what are the sorts of trade-offs that progressives, if any, that progressive candidates make by tailoring their campaign messaging and strategy Uh, to certain groups within the working class, how might that affect the reaction that these candidates receive among other parts of the working class? So those are some of the broad issues that we want to look at. And this particular survey was basically um, motivated by the idea that we want to know what types of candidates working class voters like, 
But there's actually not that many examples of real progressive candidates running, especially for Congress. I think last year in 2020, there were about 40 or 50 candidates that were that were running, you know, that weren't already in Congress that were running uh, to get into Congress and were endorsed by various progressive organizations like DSA, like uh, Bernie, like uh, Indivisible, et cetera. And of those, only just a handful were competing in outside of deep blue places. And so we want to so we can't actually look at what sorts of candidates do working class people like in these areas because there just aren't enough of them to study. So what we did is we basically constructed thousands of hypothetical candidate profiles that vary in terms of their demographic characteristics, that vary in terms of their candidate messaging, uh, rhetorical styles. And we presented these to thousands of working class voters in swing states, in five different swing states, so that we could see if progressive candidates of many, many, many different kinds were to compete in different areas that have working class constituencies of various kinds, which candidates would be most attractive to those voters. So that's basically the motivation of the study and why we thought it was important to do this kind of a, a study right now. Right. And so just picking right off from that, before we actually get to some of the findings, which I'll just say I find the findings both really, I mean, they're really interesting. Some of them feel confirmational to how how I thought, you know, what is the American working class? Some of them are actually pretty surprising. Um, but before we get into that, I do want to just like ask about basically methodology and like who are working people according to the survey? How did you determine who are working people? Because um, obviously this is an interesting study because you're specifically targeting working class people. That's um, a lot of polling doesn't, uh, you know, uh, identify specifically working class people. Um, that's something that obviously, you know, this is the, the heart and focus of this project. Uh, so who are, how do you, how do you determine who a working class person is? Um, and then uh, just in addition to that, you know, like how extensive was the polling? Um, and um, I guess it's basically a way of asking, you know, how do we understand like the accuracy? Like how well do you, um, uh, or how, how do you assess these results? Right, right. So basically there is um, a baseline definition of working class that we use, which is the one that's most prevalent in the media and in, you know, sort of like hot takes among journalists, which is, you know, non-college educated. And that's sort of the baseline definition that we work with in order to basically be able to compare the way that we're talking about the working class to the way that many other polls, which basically uh, categorize the working class and that way also think about the working class. That said, we understand uh, as people that are very interested in working class life and the way working class folks think about politics, that there are many nuances to what it means to be working class that go way beyond a very crude measure, like whether or not you have a college degree or not. So we also cut and we sliced and diced the working class in a bunch of different ways, which you can sort of see in the report. We did ones based on a combination of education and income. We did ones based on people's positioning at work. So whether or not they reported having a lot of autonomy at work or being highly supervised at work, we did it based on whether or not they did primarily manual tasks or primarily mental tasks. We did it based on the level of 
sort of creativity versus routineness of their work and different other variables that relate to uh, a person's more sort of objective position within the the working class or within the, the job market, the labor market. Uh, and we present different cuts at most of our results using those different definitions of the working class so that you can see how the results change depending on how you talk about the working class. That said, the primary definition that we use for most of the results is sort of non-college educated. And the reason why, again, is because it's the sort of most intuitive, most obvious definition that's used very widely. And frankly, the results honestly don't change that much across the different types of working class measurements that we use. They change a little bit and we can talk about that if you want, but basically the, the, the thrusts of the findings don't change considerably regardless of the way that we slice and dice the definition of the working class and whether or not, uh, you know, in terms of like, how do we think about the reliability of these results? You know, obviously we employed a, a, a reputable, uh, very well-known survey firm, YouGov, um, and we, you know, used a sophisticated and, you know, a reliable uh, sampling method to make sure that we had a, a representative sample of working class voters in, in the five states. And we can say pretty confidently that, you know, this is a, these are, these are reliable estimates of the working class. That said, you know, this is a survey and these were not real elections, obviously. These were not even real candidates. So we do absolutely have to take the results with a grain of salt. But we feel like what we lose in terms of actually representing real world circumstances, because these aren't actually election results and they're not real candidates, we gain by being able to look in a lot more granular detail at the way that working class people think about a whole host of different characteristics of candidates. We're going to be doing a lot of other like follow-up surveys, building on some of the results. So, you know, this is just the first product that we're putting out there. Um, but that's basically the the way I would sort of describe the, the methodology and, and the sampling. So, so let's dive into some of the findings now, because this is obviously why we have you on, why we've had you on today to talk. Uh, and it's as we keep teasing, it's really, really interesting. Uh, what I want to ask you first is uh, the part of your study that concentrated on messaging. So messaging is obviously a topic that a lot of Democratic strategists have been talking about lately. Uh, David Shore, who you know is a famous Democratic strategist, uh, has, has really been talking about messaging and focusing on that a lot. Uh, you know, on this show, we talk about messaging. How can we appeal to working class voters as people who are progressives or on the left? So in your study, you broke down several different types of rhetoric or messaging that you presented to uh, survey respondents. And uh, one of the styles in particular that you guys focus on is uh, woke messaging, very scientific term. Uh, I was hoping you could maybe break down a little bit what you mean by woke messaging, and then how did voters respond to that type of messaging? Right. So in many surveys, you will basically have um, very, very, very short, you know, sort of like one sentence uh, messaging uh, you know, from a candidate. What we tried to do was have similar to the the Lake Research um, survey that you mentioned earlier in the in the show. We tried to offer a little bit more, um, you know, substantive sound bites from different uh, parts of the Democratic Party coalition 
And also we had one sort of like Republican soundbite just as a sort of comparison, especially to see how well progressives would do compared to a Republican among like Republican independent voters. Um, and so we had two progressive messaging uh, soundbites, which were a few sentences long each. One of them, they were both like sort of populist. They were both, you know, sort of rich versus poor and the need for redistribution but one of which used pretty simple, plain language that was phrased in terms of everyone in society. So, you know, sort of big bread and butter issues that were of universal appeal. And the other use, what we're calling, as Jen said, sort of woke rhetoric, which is just meant to be a shorthand for saying rhetoric that is more associated with sort of progressive activist rhetoric that uses words that might, you know, uh, apply to certain forms of oppression faced by different groups in society in a way that sounds more academic, sounds, like I said, like rhetoric that would be used more at an activist meeting rather than rhetoric that might be comprehensible to ordinary working class voters of whatever kind. And so we had the progressive that used the woke rhetoric, the progressive that used the more universal rhetoric. And then we had a parallel set of candidates that were centrist, that we're not populist, we're not using sort of bold redistributive language, but rather we're talking about the need to reach across the aisle. We're talking about the need to, you know, help rely on experts to get things done, sort of like a pragmatic, more centrist approach. And then again, we had one of them used a sort of more woke style of activist rhetoric to talk about uh, political uh, uh as their political messaging. And we had the other one use sort of more universal language that didn't talk about, uh, you know, group specific issues, but just use more universal rhetoric. And then, like I said, we also had the Republican candidate to compare those four Democratic candidates. And what we found basically was that the two sound bites that used universal language and that used sort of plain language, either the progressive variety or the centrist variety, they consistently did better among uh, working class respondents than did the sound bites, either the centrist or the progressive variety that employed uh, sort of more activist, like I said, sort of academic sounding language to describe, you know, the ills that are facing our society. And we found that not just with respect to certain parts of the working class, but across race, across different measures of the working class, like I mentioned before, the different ways you can you, you can analyze what the working class means across geography, urban, rural versus small town, uh, excuse me, rural, small town versus urban, suburban, any sort of major geographic or uh, demographic difference that you can think of, these sort of results held where the sort of universal language, plain spoken, non-activist language either in the progressive or in the centrist variety performed better than their woke alternatives. And furthermore, when you combine those progressive or centrist, frankly, universalist messaging styles with progressive policies like Medicare for all, like jobs guarantee, like, you know, ending systemic racism, they, those sorts of candidates that use the universal language the non-activist language, they were much more successful uh, among voters when they used progressive campaign issues than were 
candidates that used the exact same campaign issues, progressive campaign issues, but used sort of activist inspired woke rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we found that across all different groups. And the one, the last thing I'd say on that is that these sort of results were most stark among, not surprisingly, at least from my vantage point, r- rural small town voters, among independents, among voters who lean Republican. So that is to say the, the sort of people that are most likely to be swing voters in the sort of potential Democratic coalition, they were the ones who were most influenced by this sort of messaging differences. And so it, the takeaway being that it's most important that we sort of shy away from that kind of activist rhetoric when we're trying to reach those sorts of voters in rural small town areas, the sort of independents, the lean Republicans. That's uh, essentially what we found. So I, I want to just quickly follow up on that and maybe give some examples. Um, I do want to say, you know, you do provide some examples of the types of specific messages that you showed to respondents in the study. Um, but for our purposes here on the show, like you distinguish uh again, what you said was a progressive populist message, which is kind of like a Bernie Sanders style message. So like on the subject of say Medicare for all, that would be a message that's something like, you know, Medicare, we need Medicare for all because Medicare for all is, or I mean, because healthcare is a human right. Uh, The, you know, big pharmaceutical companies have been controlling drug prices for too long while ordinary working people, you know, uh, struggle to afford insulin and are left by the wayside. This is why we need Medicare for all. Very sort of broad uh, Bernie style, like I said. Um, Woke progressive, would that be something like uh, Medicare for all is a racial justice issue? BIPOC are, uh, you know, have worse health outcomes because they're discriminated against and face medical racism. I mean, I'm just like spitballing here, but can you give some That's examples? exactly right. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. So it's it's language there there's sort of two components to it at least in the way that we thought about it, although there's additional ones that, that you might consider. The first one being whether or not there's sort of like buzzwords, like sort of activist-ish buzzwords, you know, like um, like you said, BIPOC, which is, you know, a, a term that, you know, is probably not as well known um, among sort of ordinary folks than as it might be among activists or among um, academics. Um, and there's like transformational change or, or sorts of um, phrases that are not in common parlance, at least not among sort of working class people that I know, mm-hmm. um, and that are more commonly used among activists or, or academics. So that's part one. And then part two is, using language that's universal versus like that is to say, like you said, Medicare for all affects everyone. All working people should, uh, you know, benefit from this, will benefit from this versus, you know, in order to solve the problems of, uh, you know, racial inequality or racial oppression, you know, we need Medicare for all. So that's true. Mm -hmm. uh, But the messaging is focused not on everyone, but on a particular kind of oppression that, uh, you know, isn't shared by everyone in society. So we're not at all saying that, uh, you know, Medicare for all wouldn't be a solution to racial justice. Obviously, it, it would be, but it's the messaging that's sort of focused on particular forms of oppression versus, you know, focused on everyone in society benefiting. That's the sort of difference that we're getting at. Right. So, sorry, one one quick, one last follow up on this messaging question: Were the differences in respondents? Uh, like reactions to these two different types of messaging significant enough that it's fair to say that woke messaging is a liability or did there not really seem to be, I mean, how statistically significant were the differences, I guess is my question. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So there were definitely meaningful differences and it depends on 
you know, sort of like the type of measure that we're talking about or which group or and how we're tying the rhetoric to different sorts of campaign issues. But basically, if you're just looking at the messaging of, uh, say, the woke, what we call the woke progressive, which is that sort of populist, combative, you know, need for redistribution language you know, couched in sort of the activist sort of woke language, compare that at about, let me say, uh, that was still popular among, you know, we only, we, we, we wanted to survey people that would potentially vote for Democrats. So we didn't actually include people that said that there were strong Republicans in our survey. We, we only included people that were, you know, lean Republican or independents because we didn't think it made sense to survey like what people that who would never vote for a Democrat, like thought about progressive candidates. So because of that, even the the woke progressive is is a net positive uh, type of messaging compared to the Republican, which is you know extremely unpopular. But when you, but look at the differences, which is to say, among the woke progress the woke progressive messaging uh, among the entire uh, survey of two thousand respondents got about fifty two percent positivity rating, whereas the populist progressive that you mentioned, the sort of universal language, uh, not using the activist language got around 60%. Mm. So that's an 8% difference, mm-hmm. which is quite substantial when you think about how close elections are in US politics, right? Yeah. And when you when you do those same analyses, um, looking not at the entire survey, but specifically among rural small town voters, among independents, and among lean Republican voters, i.e. the swing voters that progressives need to bring into the coalition in order to expand their coalition. Mm-hmm. Well, there's other ways to do that, which we could talk about in terms of non-voters, but of current voters, the differences are even starker, right? So yeah. there is a major difference in the support that you get if you're using that sort of uh, woke progressive language compared to the sort of populist progressive language. It's about an eight or so point difference among all these working class voters we surveyed. And that difference is even greater if you're looking at the particular geographic areas and the particular parts of the electorate that we're trying to study who are the swing voters that we sort of need to reach out to to expand the base, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, like, obviously, the point of trying to understand this is like, to figure out who wins. And, uh, and it's disconcerting if like, it turns out that the uh, populist progressive message, and the more kind of moderate Democrat, like the, the Joe Bidens and the Bernie Sanders, are the most viable, because that's going to be the people who are going to be going up against each other, or at least ideally, the left one going up against you know, in that scenario, uh, you know, wants to be Bernie against Biden. Um, but there's a lot of people on the left who, you know, are going to go up as an Elizabeth Warren against a Joe Biden or something. And it's just not going to, they're just going to lose. Like they just like the primary, like gives us a pretty, like maybe not perfect, but like certainly a good example of like these dynamics playing out. Uh, it, the, the data reflects that, but I do want to, I mean, there's just to return to something you've been saying, um, regarding kind of the universalist versus kind of the, the group political priorities or the group political messaging um, of, you know, it's interesting because like what you're, what the, the survey shows is that working class people are not like against uh, dealing with systemic racial injustice. It's like, it seems like it's quite the opposite, like working class voters across the board uh, of different, you know, races, of di- parts of the country, different geographies, um, working class people think that racial systemic or systemic racial injustices are a problem and should be something should be done about them. Uh, 
it's like, it really just, a lot of it comes down to how you actually center the politics within your campaign. And so you use this, uh, you, you talk about, you know, which politics are centered versus which are not centered or more peripheral uh, in, in a campaign platform. And so I was wondering if maybe you could expand on that and maybe like explain, maybe even with an example, uh, you know, how, how should we think about what does it mean to center uh, a certain kind of political whether it's a, a policy or um, a framework, uh, like a, a, a certain kind of messaging compared to, you know, uh, this kind of more, um, you know, laundry list that's maybe a little more academic, that's maybe a little bit more woke, um, that is trying to meet everyone's needs simultaneously? No, that's a good question. So the first the first thing to mention, as, as Kel said, is that, yes, we find really, really uh, strong evidence that, you know, working class uh, voters, you know, who could be in the Democratic fold are not at all uh, concerned about Democratic or progressive candidates uh, focusing, you know, on uh, bold racial justice uh, issues. And quite to the contrary, candidates that included, so we had like a bundle of issues, right? We said there was sort of like one racial justice issue that each candidate would have. There was one healthcare issue they would have. There was one sort of jobs and economy issue. And on for each of those three, you know, campaign issues, we we thought three, because normally if you're looking at a campaign website or something, there's like three or four sort of top issues that people might focus on. We want to kind of reflect that in our, in the way that we, you know, showed the survey. And so the progressive variety of each of those uh, was was quite popular, but particularly the Medicare for All, which was the progressive healthcare platform, and 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 the sort of progressive racial justice uh, item, which was end systemic racism, was really popular among uh, folks in our survey. Not just you know among all different groups in the working class, uh, among whites, among blacks, among um, Latinos, among men, among women, rural, small town versus uh, urban suburban. Across the board, we saw that that was a popular plank that that, that voters. Uh, responded positively to. So that's really important to keep in mind. We also found that when we asked people, well, okay, so you have your top three, you have your sort of like campaign issues, right? Your main issues that you're going to focus on. Like, so, so those are like the things that are you know going to be part of your platform. But then we also said like, well, what's the candidate's top day one, we call it the day one priority, the thing that they are going to sort of put front and center, right? And we made these a little bit more general, like sort of issue areas rather than specific sort of policies or, you know, more specific issues. And we found that candidates that put bread and butter universal issues like economics, like jobs, like the healthcare, the healthcare, like healthcare were much, much, much more popular than the candidates that put uh, issues that are extremely important, but are sort of issues that are specific to, well, primarily relate to specific groups in society. So, so racial justice and and immigration were the two. So, when a, when a candidate says that their primary issue is one of those sort of universal bread and butter issues, they're going to get a lot more support than folks that focus on sort of as their number one issue racial justice or immigration. So this is very much in line with what Kale was saying at the beginning of the show, uh, or sorry, Jen was saying at the beginning of the show that... We get confused all the time. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, you look so similar. Yeah. Uh, that basically it's not a problem. It's a good thing to be focused on, you know, bold, progressive 
racial justice issues and and healthcare issues and and all other kinds of progressive issues. But the way that you present it in terms of style and rhetoric, which we already talked about, and then the sort of almost issue ordering that is to say, like, what do you lead with versus sort of what do you, you know, bring up after you've, you know, made your initial pitch? That matters a lot for the way that voters are going to receive the same kinds of messaging. And so when you say when, when we look at like the combination of this person who says like their number one day one issue is uh, racial justice versus their number one day one issue is, um, say, jobs, the same like if a candidate focuses in their key issues on racial justice in both those cases, they're a lot more popular if they focus on racial justice as a key issue, but make the economy their primary day one issue than they are if they include racial justice as one of their important campaign issues, but make racial justice their number one priority. So, you know, it's basically just a matter of how you're packaging this, how you're, what you're leading with. It's not in any way to say we shouldn't be, you know, holding firm to those, you know, key principles of, of racial and, uh, and, and, and uh, fighting all kinds of, of forms of oppression that we all hold dear, but it's about messaging and it's about sort of like issue prioritization. Right. The, the principles are not the platform. They're separate. Exactly. I, I also want to follow up and ask um, when you, so you, as you said, you observed that respondents re, uh, responded more favorably to the candidates that said that their number one issue was like a bread and butter issue. Was that the case for respondents of all races? Because I think that there's sometimes this assumption, right, that like black voters and Hispanic voters are going to prioritize racial justice and immigration. Um, did you find any effects to, uh, to, to justify that or to support that? We did find that among African-American respondents that their um, focus on th th their support for candidates whose day one issue was racial justice, uh, that they were more favorable than whites or Latinos toward those candidates. And so that I'd have to go back and look at the figure, but it's it's close to uh, among African-Americans. I think it's close. Like if you're if your day one issue is racial justice and your candidate is almost as popular as a candidate whose day one issue is uh, say you say the economy or or jobs, but that said, the, even though there are those differences, which you know are understandable um, and somewhat logical across you know ethnic racial differences, that said, the fact that even among African American respondents, you know, a candidate whose day one issue is racial justice is no more uh, or slightly less important or like favorable than a candidate whose day one issue is jobs or economy suggests that a candidate that focuses as their day one, as their main issue on jobs and economy is, is both going to, on the one hand, benefit significantly among key groups that are not already in the Democratic coalition, while not being punished at all by key constituencies that are already in the Democratic coalition. They're so popular that's with a everyone. Point to keep in mind. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's... Um... This is something you've actually written about in Catalyst before, but there's, you know, the assumption uh, among at least many Democratic strategists or, you know, talking heads, people that make a living, make very, very nice living just talking about what Democrat Democratic voters and what working people generally think that uh, the policies, um, you know, of like, let's say Bernie Sanders, like Medicare for all, uh, Green New Deal, you know, child care for all that these are too left-wing, too radical um, 
you know, that these things will turn off swing voters. Uh, does that assumption pan out in the data? Uh, and if not, like what do working class voters actually seem to not like? No, that doesn't pan out. I mean, the Medicare for all was uh, much more popular across the board, regardless of demographic group, although less so among uh, conservative uh, and sort of the independent voters who were m- like still favorable toward Medicare for all, but that, you know, they were more favorable toward a centrist position on the economy and a centrist position on, excuse me, on jobs and a centrist position on medi- on healthcare than were other folks in the survey. But in general, yes, we find that the folks that uh, working class uh, voters in general were much more positive toward these progressive uh, healthcare, Medicare for all, um, racial justice um, planks than they were toward sort of centrist or certainly conservative planks. The job, the, the 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 jobs one is a little bit more interesting because we we included as a sort of left wing left wing plank uh, a jobs guarantee, and while there was a net favorability among working class voters for a jobs guarantee, and in fact it was it was a slightly stronger favorability among independents and among Republican respondents compared to more liberal respondents, which was really interesting. Um, that said, the jobs issue didn't really swing voters that much. That It turns out that, that saying that you support jobs for all uh, didn't hurt you. It helped you maybe a little bit, but it didn't really factor into the calculus of voters nearly to the same extent that the healthcare plank did and that the, the racial justice plank did. So, you know, there's a lot of potential reasons why that's the case. And we basically would need to do another survey to sort of ask things in a little bit different way. But that that's the only sort of caveat. Other than that, yes, these progressive issues did really, really well. And like we keep saying over and over again, you know, it really comes down to a matter of messaging um, and trying to avoid rhetorical styles and, you know, issue preference rankings that might be a little bit more alienating towards some voters that need a bit of a nudge, you know, to come over to the progressive side. So I, I want to ask you now about the types of candidates that respondents uh, seem to prefer, because that was an interesting part of the poll as well, that you actually included these hypothetical candidates, uh, including you know their class background and their gender and their race. So I thought what was interesting about the study is that you basically found that um, working class voters don't really seem to care that much about a candidate's race or gender. Um, and actually, I think that there have been you know sort of prior polls and prior studies that have confirmed that as well. Uh, like, I think in 2020, you know, uh, Gallup or like some other polling firm uh, asked a bunch of people whether they cared about the race or gender of the presidential candidate. And I think only like upper class whites said that they cared, right? Like everybody else was like, it doesn't matter. Like I just care about like what they stand for and their policies. Um, but in your study, you found that uh, working class candidates, or I'm sorry, working class voters seem to prefer working class candidates. So can you talk a little bit more about that part in your study and and why this is so important? Yeah. So, I mean, we're not the first, as you mentioned, we're not the first per- people to look at the uh, ways, the reactions that working class voters have to candidates from different class backgrounds. There actually hasn't, even in political science, there hasn't been a lot of work on this, but there's been some. But we were able to look at, you know, the class background of both candidates and voters in a more rigorous way than is normally the case, partly because we were able to measure the working class 
uh, you know, in, in terms of the voters in a whole bunch of different ways, which is not normally what you see in, in these sorts of studies. And also we were able to look at several different types of candidates and their, in their sort of class background. And we had a couple that were from, you know, broadly sort of working class backgrounds, which was teacher and construction worker. And we had a couple that were from uh, sort of like a more middle class background. Uh, so that was sort of lawyer and small business owner. And then we had one, which was just like upper class, which was CEO. Right. And we found that uh, no matter how you measure the working class um, candidates that come from a working class background uh, do a lot better than uh, candidates that come from an upper class background or that come from an upper middle class background, that is to say the lawyer. So if you're a construction worker or a teacher, you are golden in terms of working class voters. Although interestingly, as you get more conservative in the um, respondents, so among independents and lean Republicans, there is an increasing preference for the for the working for the construction worker variants of the working class candidate relative to the teacher. And as you get more liberal, there's an increasing preference for the teacher variants of the working class relative to the construction worker. And so we can I mean, there's some obvious reasons why that might be the case, I think. Uh, but in general, the sort of uh, CEO and the lawyer, uh, you know, do really, really, really badly. So, you know, our key takeaway in light, you know, in cons consistent with some other recent studies is that running candidates, you know, who are working class is going to pay political dividends if you're trying to reach working class voters. The only slight caveat to that is that small business owners are clearly, you know, and I I can sense this just from, you know, my own life, like people don't think of small business owners as necessarily not of the working class, like sort of culturally, you know, because they're just sort of like our cousins mm -hmm. and maybe they don't have a high educational background. And so small business owners were favored almost as well as the as the sort of more traditional working class candidates. So that's the only sort of caveat. Um, and then in terms of the race and gender of candidates, you're right that Previous studies have shown that race and gender doesn't matter, although there's some there's some controversy over that. But but you're right that in general, there's, there's an increasing consensus that the race and gender of a candidate doesn't really have much bearing on whether or not they can uh, do well in an election. That said, uh, we find, interestingly, that black uh, candidates did, did, did black female candidates in particular were the most popular candidates, not just among uh, you know, African-Americans or anybody else, but also among whites, even among white men. Hmm. And so there's actually a benefit, according to our data here. Uh, and it's not super shocking, given that this is, you know, a group that leans more Democrat, uh, that running as, you know, somebody that's from a, you know, African-American community or for who's, who's um, African-American female in particular, that that's not even, that's not a liability, that's an asset. Hmm. Um, and that's not totally, you know, um, out of line with some of the more high profile, you know, examples of progressives in the last couple of years, you know, who have done right. really well coming from those sorts of communities. Great. So to all the DSA chapters out there considering endorsing CEOs and lawyers, put those endorsements to the side, pick up some India Waltons, right? That's the, <laughs> basically, um, I, so actually, so probably the thing that's the most surprising about the survey, uh, the thing that so a good chunk of this, what you've already said, um, you know, uh, I agreed with some of, I thought this was the case. I was hoping this was the case. And I think in a lot of ways, this is actually very optimistic for 
to the left that we can say like, oh yeah, actually we were right to prioritize Bernie's priorities, things like Medicare for all and the jobs guarantee, that this is actually the winning message. Uh, at the same time, the thing that's maybe the most surprising that um, to my understanding, maybe even goes against some prior polling that asked similar questions has to do with non-voters or people who are, you know, low information, you know, who don't vote often, infrequent voters, um, people who are pretty thoroughly depoliticized or not very active politically, just this big mesh of, of categories. And, uh, and what it seems to say in the data, and uh, curious how you understand what this means, uh, both just like what the actual data is saying, and then maybe what this means for politics or political strategy, um, that there's a that these people that are you know not active politically are actually not these you know uh, hidden social democrats or something that they you know even though opinion polling says people want Medicare for all, that people who don't vote uh, that are they're they're basically moderates is how I've understood that, or that we shouldn't assume that they are just like progressives waiting to be or something that um, now, again, I'm curious how you understand that uh, because it also seems like because they're not very politically active, that that category of not progressive is maybe only, you know, it's not very deep. It's not a, it's not a very deep commitment to anything because it's just, it's the lack of a political commitment. And so I'm, in some ways, I'm, I'm curious, you know, does that just mean we just have to organize that much harder, uh, you know, that we, we rely on, you know, a lot of this information of our data, of our, of our theories, of our political practice, our experience and say, no, actually, we can win these people, but it's going to take work. Yeah, that I mean, that's basically that's basically the takeaway you put very well. I mean, I think that we definitely find, you know, Many of us, Bernie bros from, you know, last year, well, for, you know, the last many years, in some cases, um, are, were thinking, just as Bernie was saying, that if you go out there and you give, you know, a message that's really robust social democratic message that's not being, you know, offered by mainstream Democrats, that, you know, a lot of people that don't vote are going to come out and vote. And because, and that, and that they, the implication being that they don't vote because, they don't see candidates out there that are reflected, uh, you know, that reflect their views, right? That, that, that reflect their political positions, right? And that is essentially not supported at all. And that's not particularly, that's, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, in contradiction to other sort of political science research. But basically, it is a really important point to, to note that the folks that are non-voters and our working class folks that are like low propensity. So you can measure this in different ways, but, you know, basically people that haven't turned out for recent elections, uh, including the 2020 presidential election, those folks are, they're not conservative. Like they're just not any different than uh, other Democrats who already vote. Right. So the implication being that, you know, if you just go out there like Bernie style and, and offer a message that sounds really great, like that's not going to do much. Right. And Bernie unfortunately found that himself. Um, it, and like you said, Kill, it doesn't mean that these sort of voters that don't go out and vote like that they can't be won over. Uh, but it's going to take a lot more than what progressives have been saying for in recent years. Like, well, you know, we can do this by, you know, better messaging and offering a kind of politics that's not, being offered by Democrats, it's going to take it's going to take a lot longer term uh, vision in order to genuinely change the nature of the electorate. And the difficult trade off there, I think the implication being that, you know, unfortunately, we have to trade off 
thinking about is our primary focus to try to invest in that long-term strategy of making inroads with those non-voters so that 10, 20 years down the road or however many years we have that more stable working class coalition that incorporates these non-voters or how much do we have to focus today and tomorrow on trying to win over current voters who are currently voting for other types of more conservative Democrats or voting for Republicans. So that's a difficult trade-off and there's really no easy solution for it. And more than anything else, you know, the finding that we have here is just highlighting the difficulty of a strategy that focuses on non-voters and it highlights the need for shifting the focus to longer term kinds of organizing that might more effectively reach those folks. So I, I guess I have a follow up to that. And this is slightly outside of the scope of your actual study. Um, but, you know, listening to you talk about kind of what kind of messaging works, what kind of candidate works, what kind of combination of all of the above works. Uh, it makes me think about how we've had actually a few high profile examples of political candidates who have fit the bill in the past couple of years. So obviously there's Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, he did unexpe unexpectedly well, but of course did not win the Democratic nomination in 2016 and 2020. Now with him, we might say, you know, well, there were all of these other structural factors, the Democratic Party itself being maybe number one. Um, so, so, you know, maybe we can put that to this maybe we can put that to the side. But I'm also thinking of statewide candidates. So I'm thinking of uh, Randy Bryce, who ran for Congress in Wisconsin. I don't know if you guys remember him. He was called Iron Stash. Uh, he was an iron worker, you know, came from a working class, uh, obviously a union iron worker background. Uh, he did not use woke rhetoric, as far as I remember. Uh, he foregrounded the bread and butter, you know, issues, uh, had a very solid sort of Bernie Krat style um you know, platform, and he lost. It, similarly, in West Virginia, uh, Richard Ojeda, you guys might remember, very similar kind of like working class guy. Um, I believe he came from like a coal mining family. Uh, he is, or, you know, he, he was a veteran. Uh, he ran again on a Bernie style platform. Um, he, I think part of his, you know, um, campaign was that he, he had voted for Trump, but, you know, was now kind of on the Bernie train uh, and he didn't win either. So I, I guess the question for you is like, Oh, and actually, I want to also point out India Walton, because obviously, you know, we love her. Again, she fits the bill uh, that you've sort of laid out in your study. Um, and I guess we'll see after tomorrow whether, you know, that was successful or not. But the, it looks like an uphill battle, right? Like she won the Democratic nomination, but now the incumbent is sort of waging this write-in campaign. And the polls right now... Uh, Again, they're iffy, and I don't know Buffalo politics that well, so, you know, we'll see. But the question for you, I guess, is like, are do we just have too few examples to, like, really know? Or, like, what do you make of these examples? What, what do you make of these examples I've brought up, which, like, unfortunately have been failures? I mean, yeah, that's, like I said before, that's partly the motivation for this study, right, is that you mentioned a few candidates, uh, you know, and frankly, there, there literally aren't that many, like, you know, like in 2020, as I mentioned, like if you go to all of the endorsements of like a whole wide range, and this is another project that we're working on, like of all of the candidates that were endorsed challenger candidates by a whole bunch of different progressive organizations for governor, for Senate, for the house, there's like 45 in the entire country. Right. And, and, and the vast majority of them 
are running well a, a majority of them are running in super super blue areas where they're just fighting against other democrats right so that makes the pool of like the ojetas and the bryces even smaller right mm-hmm. and so we don't really have you know just enough of these to know all of this could be sort of there's so many other mitigating factors like when you're just looking at a few specific examples that's why we wanted to do a more kind of take a step back, do a more systematic approach and say, if we were to look at thousands and thousands of different types of candidates, on average, you know, how would different types of candidates do? We know that sometimes there's going to be heartbreaks and sometimes there's going to be other factors that are going to get in the way. Uh, But basically, uh, in general, if there were enough of them, this is the kind of pattern that we would see. Now, in the specific cases you mentioned, you know, in the um, the Bryce case, wait, was wait, who was he? Was not running against an incumbent, was he? I can't remember. I, we, we're gonna we're crunching the numbers. We're looking this up. Yeah. This <laughs> uh, but but in the in the in the Ojeda case, I mean, he was never gonna win, right? Like that was like West Virginia is a is a plus like thirty five Republican state, right? There's only like candidate characteristics matter and messaging matters. But so does a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, right. in fact, other things matter a lot more than candidate messaging. Mm-hmm. Like, this is all sort of marginal stuff compared to things like the state of the economy, like the sort of nature of the electorate, like, you know, political culture, like all kinds of other things that are really, really, really predictive of who's going to win an election. And if you're running as a gubernatorial candidate, as a Democrat, partisanship in a place like West Virginia matters more than any other factor, right? And that's true in almost all elections. So it's not a surprise. We shouldn't feel bad that Ojeda didn't win because, you know, there was no chance of him ever winning. Just doing better than other Democrats was was a step up. And India Walton, you know, she's running against a well-financed, well-liked incumbent who is who has deep roots in the community and has been around for a really long time. And he has a lot of institutional support and a lot of people like him. And also, even though she uses rhetoric that I find really compelling, you know, she does have connections with, you know, the left and she has, Mm -hmm. you know, certain people probably are making certain stereotypes about her in terms of like the radicalness of her background or whatever, despite her legit working class roots that are probably going to play a role too. So, you know, those are some of the things. I don't think the fact that there's a few candidates that, that, that didn't poorly say anything about the chances of progressives in the future. In fact, you know, there are candidates like, like Matt um, Cartwright. He's the one that I always go to. He's not a super progressive Democrat, but he was a, he was, he's in the Pennsylvania eighth district. He ran, he's a co-sponsor of Medicare for All, and he ran in 2020 uh, in a plus eight or nine Trump district, and he won re-election as a co-sponsor of Medicare for All, right? And he had the same characteristics that you're talking about, about the right messaging, you know, the right sort of uh, style and the right uh, sorts of issues. And he did really, 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 really well, right? So there are examples of the same sorts of candidates doing well. But when we compare three on this side versus two on that side, you know, that's just not enough to make any right. real conclusions. So there aren't enough candidates and there are probably almost close to as many success stories as there are failures. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And it's, again, this is not from the data. This is just like thinking about this data and, and you know, I know, Jared, you think quite a bit about politics and, and, you know, what is it, you know, where should the left be focused uh, in the country? And, it seems like just, I mean, even just historically, you know, like it's not talked about much, but rural voters, rural working class people, or even like rural, like, you know, whether it's like farmers, you know, small business owner, farmer, basically, you know, like people who own their land or something like 
rural uh, voters typically have played pretty important roles in left coalitions, whether it be in Europe, around the world, in the US, they play an important part in the New Deal as well. And and so just thinking about the future, you know, looking at where candidates have run in, in the past and, and, you know, where should the, the left be focused geographically around the country, um, you know, how, how do we understand, you know, our prospects in rural America? And, uh, and I don't know if this, if the data really bears this out, but like, I know some of your other kind of work generally has been like, you know, proposing ideas around, you know, where does the left focus its efforts uh, geographically in the country? Yeah, I mean, you're right about the rural voters historically being, you know, important parts of sort of like, um, you know, urban, rural, you know, populist, social democratic coalitions uh, around the world, and particularly, you know, famous examples like in Northern Europe and Canada, um, and even in the U.S. uh, during the populist period um, and during the New Deal. Uh, but, you know, the reason why we need to focus on, I mean, just to, you know, brass tacks, the reason why we need to focus on rural voters now is not necessarily because they're the most promising, uh, you know, potential coalition partner for, for progressive uh, uh, politicians. That's, in fact, not the case. Um, if we had a country that was just one big congressional district, you know, where we had just proportional representation, that would not be our strategy. That would be a crazy strategy. Uh, because we could just win every election by focusing on the Democratic base, which is already a majority of you know voters in the entire country. Um, but unfortunately, we live in the United States. Well, you know, unfortunately, in this sense, which is to say that we have these sorts of districts and, and states uh, that have boundaries which make rural voters and small town voters who tend to be more conservative than other voters tend to be more white than other voters disproportionately impactful. And that's always been the case. Um, it, you know, there's a great book by Jonathan Rodden. If, if anybody's willing to put up with the political science stuff, like it's called Why Cities Lose. And it goes through the history of the 20th century talking about this divide. It's super interesting. And, you know, the basic point is today, if we don't find a way to make inroads into rural and small town areas that are more conservative, we cannot build a coalition in the House and even in the Senate that can deliver the kinds of majorities needed to win the things that we care about. And we're seeing that right now when it comes to the Build Back Better bill. Like if somehow Joe Manchin, you know, we could find a wonderful candidate that, you know, had all the things that we like and they beat Joe Manchin and they were like a Bernie crowd, like that one change would basically reshape, you know, the future of democratic politics in terms of, you know, the next generation of social policy, which, you know, could have been one thing this year, but will end up being another thing because, well, there's many reasons, but, you know, it could have been different if we had been able to focus on winning, taking seriously how to win in those sorts of areas where we can with the right sorts of messaging. I'm not saying we could have won West Virginia this year, but you get the broader point. And so that's why we need to focus on these rural voters. And, I mean, there's also a, a, an important point just with respect to the future of democracy in our country, I think, which is to say, if we just write off, you know, rural, small town, you know, white, you know, more conservative voters, then we're just sort of consigning them to the to the far right for no reason, right? These are like people that have feelings and they're normal people in a lot of ways, you know, they're just different from us and some of the views and backgrounds. And if we just say we're, we're just going to write them off and we're going to try to consolidate a, a liberal coalition that doesn't include any of those voters, then we are just 
making the feeding ground for you know far right political organizing even stronger. And we need to address that from not just an electoral standpoint, but also from a like the future of democracy sort of standpoint. Yeah. So there are other reasons to focus on those folks in addition to just the sort of brass electoral tax of it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Jared, you have been very generous with your time. Jared Abbott, again, is a researcher at the Center for Working Class Politics and the study, uh, which is a collaboration between Jacobin, YouGov and the Center. Uh, it's titled uh, Common Sense Solidarity, and it'll be out next week in Jacobin, I believe, on November 9th. So keep an eye out for that. Jared, thanks again. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jared. Bye. Good stuff. I, uh, as we were going through it, uh, I, I realized that it, I, I think that it's much more powerful when you actually see the data in front of you. Um, although, you know, it's great to hear it from Jared uh, and, you know, the, the sort of clarifications that he was able to give, um, I think were really useful. So, Kale, what, what were the takeaways from the study? <laughs> well, even, even, you know, not even touching the actual details of the study for one second. I mean, just yeah. the fact that this is what we're now doing is, I think it shows like a maturity of, of the American left that like, yeah. this is necessary work to to be serious politically. Right. Right. Uh, like, and the to left... build a majoritarian coalition and, you know, not be like vanguardist. Right, right, right. Exactly. Right. That like, the whole point is not just to Right. It's not just to like, you know, think, uh, yeah, I, you know, I have the correct worldview and the problem is that the world around me is wrong. Um, it's to like, it's to say, how do you go from your principles and make them real into politics? And, uh, and so actually understanding like who working class people are in America is so essential. And so, um, you know, I guess I want to just first like, just show some appreciation to the the group that did the this work and, and look forward to more work from them um, yeah. because, because it's, it really is essential and, um, and sobering that like, we're, this is not like a, you know, I'm right. You're wrong. You know, you, you got it wrong. I, you know, my assessment of, of uh, politics is better than yours because, you know, I, my feelings on politics are different and, you know, I have certain, a certain conception that's different from yours. It's like, yeah. Yes, we have, you know, there's differences, but the fact that, like, you have to, your actual, like, the tactical changes in your politics, what you're doing in order to, to like, get power uh, have to be, to a great extent, determined by, like, what are the actual conditions that you're organizing in and who mm -hmm. are the people that you're organizing with? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and you had pointed this out earlier, but, um, you know, I... I found this study so interesting, not just because it like confirms some of my priors, like, oh, well, I thought working class people liked bread and butter issues and lo and behold, they do. Like, I mean, you know, obviously, like, obviously, you know, there's, I mean, we can uh, take we can take one win on that. <laughs> one on the board. Right. But I think that, you know, what we were talking about, uh, you know, regarding some of our assumptions about non-voters, um, that is a huge part of the study as well. And that's also, I, I think that's just as important, actually, because, I mean, if we recall, the entire Bernie Sanders campaign was heavily predicated on this notion that, you know, if we put forward a strong economic platform, the people will come. I mean, I'm like simplifying it a little bit, but I think that that was 
one assumption that guided the campaign. And, you know, I've mentioned this on the show before. I think to some extent that was successful in California. Um, I've talked about how, you know, the Bernie campaign invested very heavily in California early on, um, especially with canvassing Latino and Asian working class neighborhoods, which don't usually get a lot of political outreach. Um, But I think part of the reason why that worked is because, again, they invested in a ground game very early on. It wasn't just like, oh, we'll put the message out here and the people will come. So there, you know, there's there's push and pull. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think that's that's how you have to take, like that's the message or that's the lesson rather. I, I, we have a whole video on lessons from history, but I think like the concrete lesson that you can take from the Bernie campaign in 2020 is uh, the reason why he won Iowa, Nevada, California, despite, and New Hampshire, uh, despite like the massive opposition, like the entire party, you know, ultimately culminating in in Barack Obama, literally throwing the entire party's (laughs) weight against Bernie. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only way you do it in this moment in American history and capitalism, whatever, is through this kind of mass organizing that Mm -hmm. like you're going door to door, talking with people, connecting with them on the issues and you're not doing it once, you're not doing it the week before, you're doing it a year in advance. Right. And again, right. and again, and again. And that's the other thing, like understanding how working class people understand society, how they vote and, and different, like what candidates are speaking to them or not, um, what politics are possible and not. It also helps us understand like how capitalism works right now. Mm-hmm. We, we get a better sense of like, just how truly powerful, like the economic constraints and limitations and compulsions the system puts on people where you can put out all these good ideas. And like you're saying, you know, just the fact that you built it doesn't mean they're going to come. Like right. it's you, it's, it, there's, it, I, again, it's, I just, I think to me, the biggest thing is it's so sobering to understand how much work the left actually has to do and has right. to be serious about doing. And, you know, they have to get over all of like this, you know, just, intra-left drama, all of this, you know, um, yeah, moral posturing, right. the figurative politics, it's, the, the stakes are way too high, and there's too much work to be done, and we have to be serious. I did want to say just one last thing about messaging, though. So obviously, you know, everything that you just said, or that we've just talked about is completely true. Like the message alone is not going to make or break a campaign, probably. I mean, there are just so many other factors that are probably, as Jared said, are way more important to determining the outcome of a campaign than the messaging. That said, uh, I do think it's really important to focus on messaging because that's like the one thing we can control. So if there's a way that we can do it and we can at least get that part right, why not do it? Yeah, <laughs> it's like that should be the easy stuff. Like right. the fact that we still stumble over, you know, like how should we actually communicate our ideas in a way that's appealing to most people, or at least like most working class people? To the extent that that's a problem, is <laughs> it just like we're we're not even like this plane has not gotten the wheels off the ground yet. Like mm-hmm. there is like that. Again, this should like read this read the survey when it comes out and and take this as as like a sobering moment to to realize like what politics in America has to be if we are to have like any kind of like egalitarian or progressive future. It's yeah. This is this is what this is what it is. 
All right. Well, I think on that note, um, again, uh, as I've mentioned before, the survey will be out in Jacobin next week. So definitely um, give it a look. It's super interesting. Uh, I hope that uh, Jared was able to provide some clarity on some of the questions that, again, come up over and over on this show. Um, so, yeah, that said, thanks for watching. Uh, yeah. Kale, any last will- words? My last thought, we were, we're going to cover this survey again in the future once right. it's public. So hopefully people will get a chance to read it. And then um, uh, probably, probably in weekends, keep your eyes peeled for that. But uh, yes, if you have questions, save it for weekends. <laughs> yeah, we've been reading all of them. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, thanks. Thanks for watching. And uh, we'll see you next week. Actually, no, we we're won't. off next we- week. <laughs> so we'll see you in see two you weeks. See you the week after. Mondays, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Bye. Thanks. Bye.